as you do, grab your Bibles and head on over to Philippians chapter 2. We are going to be looking at verses 12 to 18 this morning. Uh, but i got to be real honest with you, we're going to spend the majority of our time in verses 12 to 13. Um, it's not that verses 14 to 18 are insignificant. Um, they, are, they are in some ways familiar. Um, Paul is telling the church in Philippi some things in verses 14 to 18 that won't surprise us as we read them. And we'll make some, some brief observations together about those verses. But what Paul has to share in Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 is of incredible significance to us. This passage is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible because I think it, it brings together for us in, in some really, really helpful ways in two verses what we are to understand, how we are to live, and what we are to think and believe and do and, and all of those things in regards to this command we've been given to, to obey the Lord, and then how in the world are we actually supposed to or able to do it. And at the heart of our text this morning is the issue of growing in godliness and growing in maturity as believers. If you want to throw a, a big theological word out there to describe that, it's the word sanctification. And that's the process that we are in as believers. And it's where we continually, progressively become more like Jesus. And this is a process that naturally flows out of exactly what Paul told us and wrote last week, that at the name of Jesus, who has been highly exalted, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This process of sanctification flows naturally out of our confession now that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. There will be a day, one day, when every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. But for those who have confessed and those who have bowed their knees here and now, while they still have breath and life to do so, the process of growing in maturity and godliness is a natural outflow from that there's really three parts to the Christian life, and we celebrated all three of those last week in our communion service. There's the past part of our Christian life. It's when we became saved. I got saved when I was, you fill in the blank. For me, I believe it was April 17th, 1987. It was a good Friday. I got saved on that day. And that's the past. There's a future which we look forward to. It's what we ate a meal for last week. This promise and great hope that one day we will forever be in the presence with the Lord. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth that we will live with Him forever. And we will be His people and He will be our God. And we will, we will enjoy that sinless eternity for the rest of our days. And there's a future. And then there's everything really in the middle. 
which is where all of us find ourselves right now. Those of us that have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're in that middle, we're in that present. And our text today commands obedience, but then it goes on to explain by what means are we actually even able to obey. There's a couple different schools of thought about what it looks like to be a Christian, what it looks like to grow in godliness and holiness. And on its extremes, both of them should be rejected, but on its extremes they can be summarized on one side as the let go and let God side. You know what, I'm not going to really do anything, I'm just going to kind of let God morph me into something and, and I'm not going to give up anything. I'm not going to add anything. I'm going to kind of just wait and sit here and, and, and be ready to receive whatever he has to bring and give. And, and, and that's one extreme that should be rejected. The other extreme would say and be paraphrased, summarized this way. You know, God's going to help those who help themselves. And so we, we, need to, we need to do all the work we can. We need to do all of the things that we're able to do. And, and, and once we do our part, God's going to come in behind that and start doing His part. And, and, and that's to be rejected as well. And our text today, it commands obedience. And it'll do so in verse 12. And then in verse 13, it goes on, and Paul goes on to write and explain the means by which we are able to obey. And I think if we can, if we can get our minds wrapped around some of this, it may not make it any easier, but it may help us begin walking more faithfully and consistently in a direction of obedience, which I think if you talk to those that are older and more mature, we use the word godly to describe them, I think they may tell you, you know, after years of following the Lord, there are some things that are a little easier. It's not the temptation has gone away. It's not that maybe the inclination towards disobedience has completely evaporated itself, but as we become more like Christ, we learn how to fight a little better the temptation that comes. We learn how to be a little bit more aware of where we're more or most prone to be tempted. We, we can kind of know, all right, if, if, I go, if I go there and I do that, it may not be a bad place or a bad thing, but that opens me up to temptation. And so I might need to avoid that place or that thing, which isn't necessarily bad in and of itself, but when I go there and I do that, I, I find myself more susceptible to temptation. And so I need to add some pattern and some structure to my life and walk with the Lord that recognizes I'm prone to temptation. I'm prone to failure in that direction. So I need to stay away from that direction. I think you talk to those that are godly, mature believers, that they, they're able to, to tell you some of those things and what they've learned. And, 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 and this church, this is why we need a church that's intergenerational. Because the older generation is supposed to teach the younger generation these things. They're supposed to model this before us. They're, they're supposed to 
be able to walk us through back in their day. we, We joke about that, but there's some serious truth to that. So I rejoice that we're an intergenerational church. There's not one age group here that we can lean on and go to and see the example of godly believers who, who have gone before. And maybe it's not that they got it all figured out, but there's a whole lot of things that those of us that are younger can learn from them. And so this text today commands obedience, and then it goes on to explain to us how we are able to actually obey. So let's go to the text. Let's read the text together, and then we'll pray, and we'll hop in a little deeper. So Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine like lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ... I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Well, God in heaven, we've pray and ask that you would help us to understand your word, that what you inspired Paul to write to this church, that, that, that some 2,000 years later we would sit here this morning and, and, and know that it was written for us, even if we weren't the original recipients of it. God, help us to grasp it. Help us to understand it. Help us to see this relationship between the obedience you command us to have. And then the power and the ability that you tell us by which we obey. God, help us to see things in our lives this morning. See things that we need to add. See things that we need to give up. God, I pray that you'd be very clear. We may may hear, that you'd give us ears to hear, that you'd give us eyes to see. And God, I pray, that, I pray that you wouldn't leave us alone. That no person in this room would leave without your spirit coming and doing work. So God, I pray for that. I pray that you do that in my own heart. I pray that in this we may, we may seek Christ and, and, and what he has done and, and what, what your spirit currently does is even more glorious. That we'd be able to unpack even more this gospel that has not only sus- saved us, but sustains us. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. 
Well, so verse 12 is where the command comes. We're going to break it down a little bit further, but let me just read it again because our, our text this morning is really going to be broken down into two big ideas. And the first big idea comes from verse 12, and then the second big idea will come from verse 13. So verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The, the first big idea of our text this morning is that those who are saved will demonstrate their salvation through works of obedience which God requires. Those who are saved will demonstrate their salvation through works of obedience which God requires. And here we have been told to do that. There's the command, work out is the imperative command. Go do something. And in verse 13, we see the second part. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The second big idea of our text this morning is that God empowers what He requires. And He does so by the Holy Spirit through His Word. Now, the Holy Spirit's not actually mentioned in this set of verses at all. So I want to do just a little work with you so that you know I didn't just pull him out of thin air and stick him somewhere where he may not belong, okay? So second big idea is that God empowers what he requires by the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ, as he's referenced in Romans chapter 8, through the Word of God. And so I want to look at two other verses that Paul wrote, one in Romans, one in Galatians, and here we're going to see this idea of us obeying and the means by which we are able to do so. So Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will Live At this point in Romans chapter 8, Paul has gone through extensive detail outlining for us, for them, for us, that those who are in the flesh do deeds according to the flesh. Those who are in the Spirit do deeds according to the Spirit. Anyone who does not have the Spirit is not born of God. They cannot please God, but those who do have the Spirit are given life, and God's going to give life to their mortal bodies. And so in Romans 8, 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we see it's by the Spirit that we're commanded to put to death the deeds of the body. If you've got a King James Version, I think the word there is mortify, which is a pretty cool word. Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the second big idea for us this morning is that God empowers what He requires by His Spirit through His Word. So let's go back to verse 12 then and let's break that down a little further. Therefore, my beloved, as you have 
always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, there Paul is telling them, he's addressing them as his beloved, his dearest friends, those whom he loves, those whom he had left with um, as a small church some 10 years prior, perhaps leaving Luke there to give some structure and train some men and have more people saved and discipled. And Paul's telling them, look, you obeyed and you did so in my presence for however many days Paul was in Philippi before he left and continued traveling, he's telling them, look, you listened and you responded and you made different choices. You obeyed. It's in chapter 1, verse 5, that Paul tells them and writes about their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's talking about those early days. Those early days when Lydia and some other women had gathered on a Sabbath day to pray down by the river. And they went and they found them and they shared the gospel with them and they got saved. And then those early days when he found himself in jail and an earthquake happened and the jailer was going to kill himself. And he said, no, 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 don't. And the jailer put his faith and trust in Christ. And then the jailer's family put, his faith, put their faith and trust in Christ. And people were getting saved and people were getting baptized those early days as this church seemingly out of nowhere, just exploded. said, you obeyed, and you did so in my presence. And he's telling them, do so much more in my absence. Paul's in Rome. He's not in Philippi. And he's writing back to them. He's writing to encourage them. He's writing to encourage them about what he's heard about them. And he's writing to exhort and encourage them to keep on to go that much more further, to hold the line, to stand firm, to strive together, to be fearless in the face of opposition. These verses today are just a continuation of the verses that he began at the tail end of chapter 1 where he wants this church to be united. He wants them standing together, holding the line. He wants them striving together to advance he wants them fearless in the face of opposition. He said, you guys did this when I was with you. Do so even more now that I'm not with you. Work out your own salvation. Now, it's incredibly important that we just kind of dial into the words that Paul is saying here. The word work out, it's the command of verse 12. It's the verb that is the command there. It means to bring about. It means to accomplish. It means to make happen. But we've got to notice here that he does not say work for. He says work out. There's a life-altering difference between those two words there. Okay, think about it this way, all right? You work for a paycheck, or if you're into 1980s hair bands, the weekend. You're working for something that you don't have. You work out your muscles because you do have them. You tracking with that? You have muscles. You work them out because you already have them, but you don't have next paycheck. You work 
for it. That's what he's saying here. Work out your own salvation. He is not telling them to go try and do a whole bunch of things so that they can find salvation or guarantee that they have salvation. He's telling them, you've got it. Work it out. Bring it about. Make it happen. Accomplish it. The verb that he uses, that verb work out, it's elsewhere in Greek literature used to describe the process of cultivating a land or mining a gold mine. That's how this word is is used elsewhere outside of the Bible. It's that idea of, you know, we're going to till we're going to plant, we're going to water, we're going to weed, we're going to do all of these things to bring this land to flourishing. In some sense, you could probably summarize well this word as, you know what, here's a shovel, go dig a hole, go get to work. It's in verse 15 of Philippians 2 that Paul tells them to shine like lights. So that perhaps is a helpful illustration for us. Okay, Shine like lights. Paul would say to this light bulb, if you and I are the light bulb, shine. Just do what you were created to do. Shine. That's what he's saying here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Shine. Do what you were created to do. You're a, you're a light in the world. Just go do what the Lord created you to do. Shine. And he says to do so with fear and trembling. Those words fear and trembling show up in a lot of different places in the scripture. They express, these words express an attitude that we should have before the Lord. Perhaps it's it's summarized just as the right attitude of the believer. To borrow a phrase from our series in Ecclesiastes that we began the year 2017 with when we got to chapter 5, the godness of God is not to be trifled with. there's, there's, There's something so other in God and to who He is. That we're to come with fear and trembling. We're not to trifle with Him. Perhaps this idea of fear and trembling is best seen in those who didn't fear and tremble. And immediately I think of Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira came in. And everybody at that point in this church that was not a little church, had thousands of members there in Jerusalem. All of the people in the church were selling everything they had, were giving it to the apostles who were redistributing it so that everybody had their needs cared for. And if you had a need, it was supplied for. And if you had a little bit extra, you gave that to cover somebody else's need. It's just beautiful picture of what the church should should do and be and and at that point they had concluded you know what the best way for us to work that out is just to kind of sell everything and just put it all in a big pot and then we'll let the apostles do that and Ananias and Sapphira wanted in on the action 
And so they had a piece of land. They sold the land. And Ananias came in and he gave the amount or he gave the gift to Peter and the apostles. And the question was asked, is this how much you sold the land for? And he said, yeah, that's what I sold it for. What Ananias had done is he had sold the land for more. And Peter says, Ananias, you've not lied to men. You've lied to God. And in this amazingly tragic moment, like I can't even imagine a moment like that happening here, Ananias just falls over dead. And then three hours later, his wife comes in. Sapphira, is this how much you sold the land for? Yeah, that was how much we sold the land for. And Peter says, look, behold, the feet of the men who carried your husband are coming for you. And she fell over. And what Luke records after both of those instances was that great fear seized the church. And they actually then had another explosive moment of growth. And, and I, I think there's part of us that, at least me, I, I really hope nobody ever dies in one of our services. But I, I think we can, we can dismiss that event as something that happened 2,000 years ago. Something that surely couldn't happen today. But if you just, if you just look at the context that, that that early church was in, there's very little that's different from where we are. And, and I think, yes, indeed, God was making a point in that moment that I'm not to be trifled with. But I see nothing in the Scriptures that says He's not capable or ready to make the same point here. So there's fear and trembling there's, a, there's an attitude that the godness of God is to not be trifled with. Think about it this way. The question is not, how sinful can I be to still be a Christian? That's not the question to ask. And at times, I think we can ask that question. How close can I get to, to all of these things, or how close can I get to the line? I mean, when I was in youth group, because what do you talk about to teenagers? I mean, moral purity, sexual purity was like the line. That was the line you never crossed for whatever reason. But, you know, there was always, well, how, can, how close can we get to the line? And, and, you know, youth leaders always telling you, stay away from the line as far as you can. And, 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 and the question is not, how sinful can I be to still be a Christian the question for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ is, how can I be more like Christ? How can I pursue that with everything that I got? The salvation of God's children is eternally secure. And it's one that's demonstrated through consistent and persistent Desires and actions for and of obedience. Now those are not perfect. But there is a, there is a direction that God's children point themselves. And we do so 
with flaws. We do so because our flesh is still fully alive and well and warring against us. But we point ourselves in that direction because God has said, work out your salvation. Go obey. Just about every night at this point in my life before we get the boys fully in bed after we've sung the whole, the whole songbook of songs that we know how to sing for them, Tobin, will, he'll grab my cheeks and he'll squish them. And I'm not going to squish them because it would make the mic be weird. He grabs my cheeks and he goes, Obey! Thank you, son. He does it to me because I've done it to him. He grabbed his little cheeks. Son, I think in some ways this is what God's telling us. Philippians 2.12 is God lovingly grabbing our cheeks and getting right down eye to eye with us. Obey. And our claim of Christ is demonstrated by our obedience, which God requires. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're not going to dig deep into this this morning, but elsewhere, it is very clear that regardless of the claim for Christ, if the obedience isn't there, there is good reason to ask whether or not that claim for Christ is actually genuine. James 2, faith without works is dead. And it's not that James is telling us that we go work for our faith. He's saying, look, it's, it's not enough to say the right words. Our faith in Christ is demonstrated by works of obedience, which God requires. He's telling us, shine, obey. And then in verse 13, we get the second part, which is the glorious good news part. If we're just honest with ourselves, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, if you've got an English translation, not that you and we have a translation other than English this morning, these two verses, if you look closely, you're probably going to see the word work show up one time in verse 12, and more than likely two times in verse 13. Now, if you've got an amplified version, I'm not sure what you're bringing to the table, but if you kind of stay in the standard KJV, NIV, ESV, NASB, realm. Verse 12 is going to have one work. Verse 13 is going to have two. It's a good translation for these words. But it's not the same word that Paul wrote. In verse 12, the word work there is the idea of get a shovel, dig a hole. Obey. You're a light bulb. Shine. Do what you've been created to do. Work out your salvation. Bring it, accomplish it, cultivate it, make it happen. Verse 13, it's an entirely different word. In verse 13, both occurrences, 
the word that is translated into our English Bibles as work is the Greek word energon. It's where we get our English word energy from. That word can be best translated perhaps as empower. Do you see what Paul has done? Verse 12 is the command for us to go do something. And in verse 13, we are given the means by which we are to go and obey the command. And it is that God empowers what He requires by His Spirit through His Word. So let's go back to the light bulb. Paul has told us, go shine brightly like lights. Go do what you've been created to do. He said that in Ephesians 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you've been saved. It's not of your works, but you've been created for works, which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. So God made you to shine. He made you to walk in these works of obedience. So do it. Shine. He goes on, for it is God who works in you. For it is God who gives you the energy to shine brightly. So the picture changes then. And here's the means by which we obey. It's God is the power source by which we are to shine. We're the light bulb, but God's the power. The light bulb was only created to do one thing. It was just created to shine. The light bulb's not the switch. The light bulb is not the power source. The light bulb's not the circuit breaker. It's not the transformer on the pole. It's not what's happening at the power station. The light bulb has one job, and that's to shine. And that light bulb doesn't shine without a power source. And this is what Paul is telling us. You and I, as light bulbs, are to shine but it's actually God who empowers what He requires. And He does so by His Word through His Spirit. Or by His Spirit through His Word. Go back to verse 13. Paul says, For it is God who works in you. For it is God who gives you the energy to both will and work for His good pleasure. That word will there is the word, and it's the idea of desire. God changes our desire. God, God gives us different desires. One of my life verses, Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. I don't believe the psalmist there is telling us that if I read God's Word, if I spend time in prayer, that, that I'm just to then go and charge after everything I want. I believe the psalmist there is telling us is that as I read God's Word and I spend time in prayer, God is going to change and transform and mold my desires so that they're not wicked desires. They're holy desires. We're told in Proverbs, the heart is desperately sick. Left to my own, 
I am fully capable of having unholy desires. And I need God to change and transform them. And this is what we are told God does. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, this was the promise of what would happen when the Holy Spirit came. And God says this in regards to this new covenant. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone into your, or from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. God's going to cause us to do something. That's this language of Philippians 2, verse 13. It's God who actually gives the energy. It's the power company that gave the energy for this light bulb to be shining. There's a cause there. The light bulb didn't create its own energy. There's a cause. God's here telling us, I'm going to be that cause. You're going to be careful to obey all my rules. This idea shows up in 2 Corinthians 8 to 10, or 8 verses 10 and 11. The idea here is giving. And here in all of verses or chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, the overarching context is that we give generously because Christ has given of himself generously. That our pattern of giving is Jesus himself. So in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but to desire to do it. So there was a point in time in the life of the, Christ, of the Corinthians that they, they didn't desire to give. They weren't responding in generous giving to the, the missionaries that were needing their support, to their local church. They, they didn't desire it, and they weren't doing it. And he says, look, now you began to desire it. And he continues, so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. It's another instance where we see that God empowers what He requires by His Spirit through His Word. So then here's the relationship that we find ourselves in. Perhaps best summarized by a theologian who I'm going to have to add and change some of his words so that we, we can understand it. God's working in us is not unnecessary because we work. Our working is not unnecessary because God works. You see how we have the let go and let God? God helps those who help themselves, both excluded here. The relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God working in us. We're the light bulb, called and told to shine. But we're not the power source. So then perhaps the question next is to ask, how do we do that? Okay, so God empowers what He requires, but how? By His Spirit, through His Word. We see the words show up in verse 16 of our text this morning. 
Paul tells them as he's explaining how they're going to shine, how they're going to not grumble, how they're going to not argue and question, how they're going to be blameless and innocent, how they're going to be without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, how they're going to shine in the midst of everything else that's going on around them. And he says in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. God empowers what He requires by His Spirit through His Word. And I'm very grateful for an illustration that Justin gave the Grace Men uh, probably a couple years ago at this point. This illustration is taken from 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 and it pictures our lives as believers on, on, on a highway, if you will, that, that big rectangular box that stretches from left to right that's a road and so God's word as we're on this road is going to teach us and if we find ourselves getting a little sidetracked and we start leaning to the left a little bit and on this off ramp it's going to reprove or it's going to rebuke us it's going to say danger you're not heading in the direction that you should be heading in you're off the road you're off the course and so then God's word's going to correct us and it's going to say, this is how you get back on. And let, this, is, this is the road and this is what it looks like. And as we continue, God's word trains us. And it does so for a purpose, that we would be competent and equipped for every good work. Every good hole that we're supposed to dig every good moment to shine like lights in the world. God's Word trains us for that. God's Word equips us for that. God's Word corrects us when we get off course. God's Word shines forth like a big old warning light telling us something's not right here. We've been called and commanded to obey. And we do so as God empowers what He requires by His Word, through, by His Spirit, through His Word. Well, Paul gives one more, it's not even an illustration so much as he points the gaze of this church forward. And it's a fascinating, fascinating place for him to summarize this argument, if you will. What we'll see next week in the text is that he moves on to talk about some people. He's going to talk about Timothy and, and Epaphroditus, and there's no commands in next week's set of verses. It's part of his goal of updating this church on what's going on and what he plans to do here in a little bit, and, and it's just this friendly letter that he's writing to his beloved friends. And so in really, in some ways, to summarize and to put a bow on this section of commands that Paul has been giving them and us that began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 27, he does so by pointing their gaze forward, by pushing their imagination to the end. And he says this, verse 16, hold fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud 
that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. And I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also rejoice and be glad and rejoice with me. Paul takes their gaze and he points it forward to this final day, this day of Jesus Christ, this day when all of the enemies are silenced. That day when every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and every tongue will confess. He, he pushes their imagination back to that day, forward to that day. And I think he's is, is saying something like this to them. I want you to imagine the day that we stand before Christ. I want you to imagine not only Christ as whom you've surrendered to as Lord and Savior, but also all of those who you live with in Philippi, who you've been standing with, and who you've been striving with, and who you've been fearless with. And I want you to imagine me. And I want you to imagine me in the background with a big old smile on my face, watching and listening to you receive your rewards. And I want you to imagine in that moment that you and I are fully and completely rejoicing because what we right now believe by faith, we will on that day see and know by sight. And we'll know that everything we have faced here on earth was absolutely worth it. So as you imagine that day, live this day in obedience with joy as I do. Work hard at shining as lights. Hold fast to the word of truth because God gives you the very energy you need to obey Him. And He finishes what He begins. I'm not going to oversell our ability. If we understand this text correctly, this text tells us that we have no ability in and of ourselves. The light bulb doesn't shine unless it's plugged into the power source. So let's not oversell our ability here. But let's also recognize this obedience is possible. This saying no to sin and yes to God can be done. There can be victory here and now. There can be victory Today, not because we're awesome, but because He's awesome. And Paul's prayer in chapter 1 is that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ. So let's not oversell ourselves. Let's magnify God's grace and the gift of the Spirit in our lives. And the monumental importance His Word is 
We want to know how to obey. We want to know how to shine. We want to know how to stand. We want to know how to strive. We want to know how we can be fearless. God empowers us to do so by His Spirit, through His Word. So let's hold fast, church. Let's go shine. Let's get a shovel and start digging some holes. God empowers what He requires. He does so by His Spirit, through His Word. Let's pray. God, help us to not think or conclude that in and of our own strength, this is possible. God, help us to to lean on you and to to draw near. As as, as Damien read earlier this morning, that uh, we, we have confidence because we have a high priest who's been tempted in every way as we were, but was without sin. and He sympathizes with our weaknesses. And, and then with confidence, then we can hold fast our confession and draw near to His throne. That we may find the grace we need. That we may find the mercy we need. Lord, to, to take today's words. That we may find the power we need. The energy we need for our desires to be changed. God, we thank you for the power that you've given. Not in our strength, Lord, but in the strength that comes by your Spirit through your Word. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.